my name is Sydney and I'm the current vice president of events for SU. And my name is Jen and I'm the current vice president of marketing. Thank you for tuning back in for another episode of CMNSU and Friends. This week, we will be continuing our careers and communications segment with our lovely guest, Chris Brumwell from the Canucks. So welcome, Chris, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Sure. Uh, my name is Chris Brumwell and my, uh, my current role is with the Vancouver Canucks, where I'm the Vice President of Communications, Fan, and Community Engagement. And so if I can explain maybe what that means a bit, if that helps. But uh, uh, on the communications side, um, my, my responsibilities and the team there, uh, primarily it's media relations. There's a lot of media uh, that cover the Canucks and the NHL. And so we liaise with the media primarily that, that, uh, that cover the team on a daily basis. Um, and then other communications files, as uh, people probably can imagine, with internal and external communications when it comes to corporate partnerships or issues management and that kind of thing. And then on the fan and community side, um, we run the programs that, that happen in the community that, that uh, fans can be part of or that kids can get involved in, everything from the minor hockey programs um, to some of the NHL programs that run um, and then it expands over into the charitable fundraising side as well. So we run the, uh, with the Canucks for Kids Fund, we run some of the events that help um, raise what we're grateful for of millions of dollars every year for charity for kids, kids um, causes across the province of BC. So it's a, it's a, it's a fun job. Awesome. So to provide some context for the listeners, uh, Chris went to um, university in Calgary. He graduated from Mount Royal University. So one of our first kind of opening questions for you, Chris, is what led you to Vancouver? Was it always something that you wanted to do after graduating university or was there another opportunity prior to um, the Canucks opportunity that was already here that kind of led you here? or um, What kind of prompted you to make the move from Calgary to, to Vancouver? Well, I was originally uh, born and raised in Victoria and uh, lived in Vancouver for, for a few years and um, wasn't sure what I was going to do with my, my career, my life, if you know what I mean. So I didn't go to school right out of high school. I, I took a year off and my father at the time was um, a high school counselor. And so he often would meet with students who were trying to determine what university or where they wanted to go. And he came home one day with a Mount Royal University, um, you know, book or whatever that, and he saw this PR program in there and thought that it might be something that I should go for. And to make a long story short, I went for it. And um, part of the program in, in Calgary at Mount Royal was a co-op program, similar to in some ways to what SFU does. And so I had two opportunities. Uh, my first opportunity, I went to Edmonton and worked for Human Resources Development Canada and a program called uh, Hire a Student. And so I worked in a big government office and um, helped with some of the publications and communications that went out to students so they could find jobs in the summer and things. Um, and that was in, um, Oh boy, that was a long time ago now. I think it was 1994, uh, which doesn't seem that long ago, but suddenly it does. Uh, and at that time, I, I was just a huge Canucks fan um, and still am. And I, I grew up a big fan of the team. And that's the year they 
they they went all the way to game seven of the Stanley Cup final. And I thought, and the and the Vancouver Grizzlies, the NBA team, was um, just coming to Vancouver. I think shortly after that, and I thought, you know, I, you know, it's nice to get this co-op work term uh, in Edmonton, but it's really reinforced how much I want to be involved in sports, and that was kind of my dream. Um, and so, for my next co-op work term, I I set a goal of trying to get a, a role in sports, and. Um, as, as I may mention a few times here, I got really lucky. Um, but my uncle went to university with someone who worked at the Grizzlies, Jay Triano, who's one of the most decorated, um, well, Jay's an SFU grad, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, anyway, so he put me in touch with Jay. And um, through that connection, I ended up getting an internship, my next co-op work term with the Vancouver Grizzlies, their first season in the NBA. And that's how I kind of got my foot in the door. Um, and uh, so that's, yeah. So my, my first work term was, was fine, but it really enforced where I reinforced where I wanted to be. And, and, um, and then I, I uh, got lucky. Were you kind of noting on that um, you were always a Canucks fan? Were you a big sports player as a kid as well? Did you play hockey? I played hockey as a kid, but I, um, I was a, a big uh, sports person, I guess you could say. Yeah. Not so much as sort of sitting down and watching on TV as much as, as playing, I guess, you know, um, and it's not a very big sport anymore, but at the time, uh, racquetball was a big, was a big sport. And um, I ended up taking that and, and pursuing that in a big way, which is part of the reason I went to Calgary to train and play on the national team. And that's how I kind of wound up at Mount Royal as well. This sort of two things led me there. Mm -hmm. um, so sports has always been a big part of my life. Awesome. Okay, perfect. So uh, you mentioned with your internship with the Vancouver Grizzlies. So um, did that co-op term get extended and then you started working full-time with them or how did the transition from uh, being an intern at the Vancouver Grizzlies kind of transition to getting a position with the Canucks there? So um, how it worked was I worked on the Grizzlies games and across the hall, so to speak, was, was the Canucks office. And and although I was very excited to be part of the Grizzlies, my heart was across the hall in the Canucks office. And I got to know their uh, media relations manager um, on the Canucks side and just, you know, carefully asked, you know, if you ever need any help, let me know kind of thing. And I ended up handing out statistics in the press box on game nights. And so I, um, if you think of an 82 game NHL and NBA season, and, you know, 20 year old or however old I was at the time, handing out stats in the press box of both games and working game after game after game. It was, it was a lot of hours, but I loved it. Right. And so that's kind of how I got my foot in the door at the Canucks handing out stats in the press box. And when my internship came to an end, I'd made enough of a, a connection, I guess, with his name is Devin Smith. And I'd made enough of a connection with him that I stayed in touch. Um, and I remember exactly but he brought me back after after my second work term it was kind of the end of my school as well I graduated and so I moved back to Vancouver and he brought me in um, just to do a bit of contract work on the Canucks side and that ended up becoming a, a full-time role as a media relations assistant 
And again, as I said, I, like I got lucky a little bit because um, the NBA being a new franchise, they were, the Grizzlies were, the Grizzlies being a new franchise, they were modeling themselves after NBA franchises in the US, which were bigger and more, uh, I don't know if this is the right word, but more sophisticated. They had um, bigger staff and more elaborate or sophisticated, I guess, uh, strategies and things. And on the Canucks side, it was still more of a, a smaller shop. And, and I think what happened was I benefited from the people on the Canucks side seeing what was possible um, with looking uh, at the NBA model. And um, that helped me, I guess, create a position where there wasn't really one before. And uh, so, yeah, I, I, um, I was in the right place at the right time a little bit with that one. For sure. So you worked with the Canucks for nearly 10 years and then you left mm -hmm. to take up the, the Olympic position. Um, were there any doubt or nerves? Because I know after 10 years, it, it begins to feel like a routine and something you'd be very comfortable in. Were there any doubt or nerves behind the diversion? I know I'm a huge Olympic fan myself. So when I read that, I thought, wow, the Olympics, that's a crazy opportunity. Were you ever nervous to leave behind the Canucks and go take up this huge opportunity? Big time. Um, yes, big time. I, I wasn't looking to go. I mean, uh, I was, uh, at that time, I think I was roughly 24, 25, maybe even somewhere in that zone. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, think about it. you're a huge Canucks fan your whole life and you've got this job and you're traveling around North America with the team on a, uh, um, on the, on the sort of that very unique, uh, travel schedule that you have and like it was just amazing and and to have the relationships that I had there were, were great but there's just no way to turn down an opportunity to work on Olympic games in your own backyard right and and so um you know I think that one of the things I would want to make sure we talk about today is just the importance of relationships and how those can really help you in your career and in your path and because of the relationships I had, that's what opened the door at the Olympic Games. Mm -hmm. So there was a, a uh, our, our COO at the Canucks was Dave Cobb at the time. And John Furlong was the CEO of the Vancouver 2010 um, uh, big corporation and then ultimately the organizing committee. And he, he, um, he recruited Dave Cobb to come over and work with him as his, uh, he ultimately he was the deputy CEO, if I'm not mistaken, Dave was. And so my, I had a really good relationship with Dave and that's how the opportunity came about at the Olympic, at the Olympic um, committee. And uh, so it was really, I was really, uh, again, really grateful and fortunate to have that relationship. And that led to something that I would never have even dreamed of before that. That's really awesome. Yeah, as, a, as an Olympic fan myself, I thought that um, that's just a crazy role. And how did you find the experience? Because I know you kind of said that um, with the Canucks role, you kind of built it yourself and it was, it was a relatively new role at the time. Did you feel the same about the Olympics since it was a, it was a, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity? The Olympics had never been to Vancouver before. They probably won't for another while. Um, so there was never really somebody... 20, fingers crossed. 2030, could <laughs> fingers happen. Crossed. Um, but how did you find the experience entering into a role like that? That was never, there wasn't uh, somebody who, to teach you. It was a, a new role. 
Uh, it was a huge change. Uh, I have to say, like, it was a huge change because on the, on the hockey side, trying to explain this, um, the difference in, in, um, I use the word sophistication again. I just don't think that's the right word, but uh, on the hockey side, let me explain, like, like the way I look at it is you're on a, on a day-to-day basis media, for example, are covering the team and, uh, the head coach probably is in front of a camera more than any other public spokesperson in the province on a daily basis. Um, so yesterday, as an example, Travis Green would have done a morning media availability. He would have done radio and he would have done TV if they needed him. And then post game, he would have done another media interview uh, with all the media together, press conference. And he would do that almost every day of the week. And when you're doing it that frequently, you're not spending as much time framing up messages in like a strategy document, for example, or building a, um, a, a, a communication strategy that maybe you're going to execute over, you know, two weeks from now, that kind of thing. You're, you're kind of nimble and moving. And um, at that time, social media wasn't quite as, as uh, well, it wasn't really a factor like it is today, but it's more of a, a day-to-day kind of thing on the hockey side. And you, you've got bigger strategies that you go for, but just on those that level, it's more of a um, reactive. And at the Olympics, what I found, one of the biggest adjustments I found, aside from everything just being new, like I, on the Canucks side, I worked there for nine years. I knew everybody. I knew every how it all worked. So you're moving to a new job, which is it's a big adjustment anyway. Um, but it was the the strategy strategy developments and the the purpose led um initiatives that were going on and the the reliance and the collaboration that was required with multiple stakeholders was really an eye-opening experience for me at that at that point in my career um so on the canucks side you can put together a strategy you can write a press release let's say the press release is the most basic thing you can think of so if you write a press release you get a couple people to approve it and then you send it out whereas at the olympic games you write a press release, you have to get, in some cases, you might need the Canadian Olympic Committee, the International Olympic Committee, the government of BC, the city of Vancouver, and maybe another stakeholder, like, um, you know, maybe a major sponsor to all look at it and make sure they have all the sort of input into it, then get translated into French and then send it out. So the, 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 the amount of um, maintenance and work that would go into something as simple as a press release, just to use that as an example, was quite different and that that was sort of those kind of things were were a, a big adjustment for me just in my young career there trying to figure things out mm-hmm. and then just kind of building off of this because you touched a little bit upon it um but just obviously with such a large-scale event like the olympics and like you mentioned so many different stakeholders and maybe larger sponsors um obviously during that time there um how many different hats were you wearing while working there obviously everything kind of overlapped overlaps I would presume but um, if you maybe wanted to elaborate in regards to maybe um, a couple of the different things that you would do on a day-to-day basis well um, the thing is with a a larger organization often you have more um, your role is more defined if you know what I mean so um, if you're working in a smaller organization, you probably wear a lot of hats or play at a position to use a sports term. And in a bigger place like Bannock ultimately became, 
um, we were really specifically focused on communications and media relations for the most part. And so um, let me think of a few things here that might be relevant, but like a lot of the thing we, we divided up files, let's say. So almost like, um, like an agency. So that I, I, for example, I was responsible for a lot of the revenue generating files, the, things like a sponsor announcement or ticket sales uh, communications, um, things like that would fall under my umbrella. And then my colleague, Mary, she would take some of the sport topics like, uh, you know, there was a, a large um, focus on women's ski jumping at the time, and a lot of controversy around that. And, and under the sport umbrella, she would take that. And so we would sort of divide things up to, to allow someone to be able to take, take a lead role and really dig into it. Um, so, um, I think on a day-to-day -day basis, a lot of what we would do was it, at the games, there's like this, no, this unmovable deadline, February 12th, 2010, that's not moving. And there's a, there's a significant amount of work that goes into getting ready for that. And so, um, the calendar was always something we had our eye on and working with our partners to make sure that the right announcements were happening along the way. Uh, and those, those guideposts or those milestones often influenced the kind of work we were doing. What I'm doing now, let me just ramble for one more second. What I'm doing now, if to use the other example of working for a smaller organization, unfortunately due, due to the pandemic, our offices, um, our staffing numbers are, are down significantly at the Canucks and um, we've had to say goodbye to a lot of really good friends and, and it's made a huge impact on our office. Um, but it also has allowed us to, to do a lot of different things we might not already or previously have done. So right now I'm overseeing the marketing department and um, the groups that or the people that work on brand and the creative side and content, all the stuff on social media, in addition to communications and community, which I typically do. And so as a smaller organization, you kind of, you're, you're getting more experience than you might otherwise get from working at a big, huge, you know, crown corporation as an example. Mm -hmm. um, speaking of crown corporation, after the, after the Olympics, you went on to work for BC Hydro and mm -hmm. then Lululemon, how did you find having the experience of, you know, the Canucks back in the early 2000s and then leading into the Olympics, such a huge event? How did you find your place at BC Hydro and, and what kind of, what experience did you get from there? Um, well, my path to get there was again through relationships. Uh, so people that I worked with at the Olympic Games went to BC Hydro after. And it's funny when you work on the Olympics, it's such an incredible amount of work and so like all consuming that you don't really have any time to look for other what's next. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you know, one of the things I'll always remember is, you know, you packed up your desk before the game started because you go yeah. out and work at a venue or the main press center or something. And so the desk that you sat at for years to get ready for the games, like you pack it up, like you're leaving, you know, you have a box, you know, put it in the car and you leave and then you know you do your work during the games which is just like a you know crazy uh crazy experience and then you go to the closing ceremony and the the, 
the torch goes out and you walk out of the building. And for the most part, except for a handful of staff, you're done. Like that's it. That's it. So you don't really have a chance to look for your next role probably. Um, and so I, that's it. That was my experience anyway. And so, you know, after a few months of looking around, my colleagues had gone to BC hydro and I, I had an opportunity to go there and it's, it was, um, it's a, it's a really, you know, important place to work or a good place to work an important, uh, piece of the, the province um, it didn't but it didn't uh, it just wasn't really my fit if that makes sense you know mm -hmm. um, and so oh, I, I started to look around a little bit carefully because I, I respected the fact that I had that role but um, I, uh, I some of my other colleagues had gone to Lululemon and and it was again like I said earlier relationships are so important that's how that opportunity opened for me so kind of now joining your experience with working at Van Ock in the uh, Olympics, and then um, we can see through kind of just the transgression there that you eventually made your way back to the Canucks. So um, was there a large comparison or were there lots of sim similarities between your experience at uh, Van Ock and the Olympics, and then when the um, Vancouver drafts were here, were there a lot of similarities? Obviously, the um, NHL drafts are a much larger scale event in comparison to the Olympics, um, but did that kind of bring back memories of hosting a larger event that may not come back to Vancouver again? Of the NHL draft? Yeah. Uh, it's so different, like it's so, the, the games are so complex because of all the stakeholders. And the, one of the, the beauties, I guess, of the NHL is it's, um, there are stakeholders involved, no question, but there's not as much, um, it, it's, uh, I don't wanna say it's easier because it's not, but it's just different, I guess. One of the things I did really enjoy about the draft though, was um, similar, I guess, maybe to the games, was, was going for it. Like we, the idea came up, you know, we were sitting there. It takes a couple years to, to win the draft or win the bid, do all the planning and have it happen. And I remember sitting in a, uh, an executive meeting at a time when the team was really struggling. And, you know, there wasn't, we didn't have uh, Elias Patterson or Quinn Hughes or some of the young players that fans could really attach themselves to for the future yet we didn't have them yet and we were kind of in that middle zone where the the team that people loved for years that was was anchored by the the Sedin twins and many others was sort of getting maybe to closer to the end of its run and we didn't quite have that vision forward so we were looking for like what can we do that can give a spark to the market and um, we decided to go after the draft because we thought that a it was an NHL event that give a little spark in the offseason and two, it would probably fit into the narrative around what we're trying to do, which is to build that younger team and build for the future. And the draft, obviously, you're drafting young players and building for the future. And so um, it was, I was lucky enough to sort of be tapped to lead that process and lead the bid process and the collaboration with the NHL and, and, uh, and everything else. And we ultimately won the chance. And what year was that, 2019? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there hasn't really been a true draft since because of the pandemic. So we're still no, no. Uh, the final got lucky. <laughs> yeah. So um, it was really a proud, 
like in, in my career so far, that was really a proud uh, ex- moment or experience that I had. Um, and uh, it wasn't quite like the Olympic games cause it's not nearly the same size and scope, yeah. but it was pretty cool to put in all that work and then walk down into the arena the night before and have the whole setup and the stage and think, huh, I kind of, kind of had a big role in this. That's kind of cool. That's, so that's it was very rewarding from that perspective. Would you say that that experience, um, just thinking of the NHL, I didn't realize, I just looked it up, but um, Vancouver hosted the All-Star Game in 98. Would you yeah. say that that experience was similar? Obviously it was a different scale yet again, but, and it was during- Yeah, the- I can't, yeah, I can't really say that I was so new at that point. I didn't really have very much involvement in it. So I can't say it was the same experience from a professional perspective. Um, but I, I do, uh, I, I have enjoyed some fortune in being given sort of, as I said, tapped on the shoulder to take different roles here and there along the way that um, often I think in the communications field, you're, if, if you've been in a while, you kind of, you have the relationships and maybe the ability to, to sort of flex into different areas, if that makes sense, because it's such a good skill to have as a core skill. And so um, putting together that bid was, was fun and exciting and it, it led to good things. And I had a, I was then given another opportunity um, to help lead the process of, of the return to play coming out of the pandemic. And um, so we got, we got within a whisker of, of winning the, the bid to host the playoffs here last summer that ultimately went to Edmonton. And there was a few days there where we thought we had it. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was pretty disappointing not to get it in the end. Um, but that was okay. And um, from that, I, I was part of the process to, to get the return to play piece underway for, um, for this season and make sure that um, all the communication with government was, was clean and crisp and, and proactive. And through the communications experience I've ga- gained, um, one of the roles that often is an offshoot or, a, a, um, you know, an additional role that people can take on is the government relations side of things. And that's something I've, I've taken on in the last, in the last year because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And then kind of, again, we're just kind of building on the, the experiences here. So um, you kind of, t- again, touched upon it uh, with last year and the return to play and everything like that. So how was the experience during the playoffs amongst COVID? Uh, were you, did you have the opportunity to go to Edmonton and go into the bubble or uh, did you have to continue to work remotely? How was that dynamic for you? Obviously, uh, you were there during the 2015 playoffs when they, when they went. Um, so how was that um, shift in, in experience? there it was super weird it was very strange I have to say so because um, each team that went to the playoffs was allowed to bring 50 people and that was it right and so you think about that that's you know you've you've got a roster of I wonder how many guys we took with that like most of the roster is taken up or most of those 50 people are comprised of players, coaches, trainers, doctors, et cetera, et cetera. So we only had the opportunity to bring uh, one PR person and one social media content person and inside the bubble. And so my colleague, Ben Brown, who um, has been doing this a long time as well, 
he's sort of closer in with the team on a day-to-day basis. And so he went and did the work in a bubble in Edmonton. And so, you know, you're doing zoom call availability. Um, and I, like I sat here on my couch at home watching these playoff games and you're winning a, a, a playoff series. Like you, we won the first series against Minnesota and that was exciting. And then we beat the St. Louis blues, the, the reigning cup champs. And I remember the night, like, you know, won that game, did the zoom call, turn it off. And then you're just sitting here in a quiet house. Like this doesn't seem the same as what it should feel like when you win a series. Um, and so that was why it was, that was why it was really strange. It was just, um, so the way I supported Ben uh, and one of the roles, I guess, if this is helpful to, to understand is we try to make sure there's no surprise questions for the coach or the players and they can answer however they want, obviously. But one of the things we try to do is monitor you know, social media or what people are saying or what questions might come from the media based on um, um, who, you know, who's on the Zoom call and that kind of thing. So in Edmonton, Ben was behind the scenes and he'd be, you know, uh, working the dressing room to make sure we had players coming from the dressing room to the Zoom platform to do the interviews. And I'd be sitting on my couch, you know, uh, putting together a list of the types of questions that the coach might get, Travis Green, or the players might get, and would text him that so he could, he didn't have to do, try and do both, if that makes sense. So um, that was kind of my, that was my role. And then he'd hang up the phone and be like, I guess that's it. Yeah. Pretty exciting I, night. I guess I'll go to bed. <laughs> feels like a fan experience because a lot of people were really, you know, whenever the Canucks make the playoffs, it's, it's a huge thing in Vancouver and you really want to go see the games. And I feel like it just felt so weird. And it was in the middle of the summer too. It felt so odd. And I can imagine how, yeah. how challenging it was. I feel like that's one of the, one of the many industries that it's, it's always such close personal contact, everything about it, everyone in the stands, everyone behind the scenes, 50 people seems really small thinking about all the trainers, yeah. all the players. I mean, there's already so many players and then, yeah, I didn't realize it was so small, but it, it makes sense. Yeah, it's very small. And then, um, not to digress, but when we came back this year, we got to play games at Rogers Arena, which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. But everything at Rogers Arena is, or nothing at Rogers Arena is set up for a pandemic experience. No, It's all set up for mass crowd gatherings and everything else. And so similarly to, similar to how we did it in the bubble, there's very strict protocols in place with who's getting tested every day and who can be in certain zones and out of certain zones. And so just the exercise of determining which entry an off-ice official would come through, which elevator he could take that wouldn't cross paths with maybe a player who was part of a different group and someone in the media was part of a third group. Like the, the whole thing, everything at Rogers Arena is, is sort of remapped and reimagined right now during the pandemic. Mm. And uh, now that it we're, we're underway, it's working perfectly. But uh, man, oh man, it was quite an exercise trying to figure out. And there's only like 120 people in the building, but just figuring it all out was quite a quite a journey. I bet. And then, so again, you kind of touched upon it just with the return back to play, and um, obviously. Yes, we're, uh, the Canucks are playing games in Rogers Arena. However, the fans are 
obviously still not um, allowed to go in. So um, I'm just curious to kind of know how, uh, maybe on the back end, how you guys are um, hoping to keep that fan engagement there and um, still at peak levels when they're not allowed to um, maybe meet with players or um, I know that before they did signings and things after games. So um, are you guys doing almost replacements via uh, via like Instagram and things like that um, to still keep that fan engagement up in, in regards to the Canucks and the players? Yeah, it's a huge topic for us, for sure. And you're right, like you can't do anything in public right now for good reason. Um, so what we've tried to do is obviously the, our, our social media, our digital channels are the number one way um, along with the broadcast to reach fans. And so a couple things that we've tried to do to help fan engagement stay strong. Um, if you think about starting with the broadcast, the, we do have game, game entertainment in the building. Like we do have music, we do have the fake crowd noise. Um, and we do have a few things that are happening. Like if you watch the national anthem and then we've got the, the, the siren that the people crank at the beginning of the game, we've, we've integrated that in a, we've thought about the timing and worked with the broadcast. So Sportsnet can show that as well. Otherwise, if you do something in the building and no one's, the broadcast doesn't see it, no one's going to see it. Right. So we've really tried to collaborate with the broadcast to um, bring a little bit of that, uh, in-game experience to people at home watching. And then on the, on the sort of broader picture of things, one of our strategies this year was to continue with some of the theme nights that we've done in the past um, to celebrate our community, our diverse community, and some of the other important initiatives that are, that are, that are out there. And so although we don't have fans in the building, we still, are, we still have a, a whole series of theme nights um, so we've had hockey talks night, which sheds light on, on mental health awareness and tries to break the stigma there and did a variety of different things on social media to help connect fans with that night. Um, we just finished our reverse retro homestand, um, which was a, a, um, a pretty interesting strategy that, um, Morgan Wood or Morgan Fox, her name is now, uh, came up with where, you know, she, instead of just wearing the retro jerseys, reverse retro jerseys, you know, sprinkling them across the season, she thought it would be great if we just did them all in one homestand, rebranded our website, reskinned this, um, put contests in place, did a bunch of sort of retro content and really leaned into a reverse retro homestand. Um, and so that was another opportunity for us. Um, this coming month is... is um, hockey is for everyone. I don't think it's hockey is for everyone month. I think it's gender equality month at the NHL level. We're going to run a lot of our hockey is for everyone programming theme nights coming up this month. Um, uh, we've got a, a, a international women's day is coming up. So we'll feature women in hockey on that night. Um, we're having our pride night um, coming up as well. Uh, Indigenous people's night is coming up as well. And so those are opportunities for us to, um, celebrate those communities and, and do it in a way that engages fans um, where it keeps us engaged with our fan base going forward. And then hopefully next year when we can hopefully get back to some kind of normalcy, we can, uh, <laughs> you know, move that back to a place where people can experience it in person as well. Okay. Following that, I have 
two questions, one of which is definitely more career oriented and one of which is just a, a petty fan question I have. Um, can the players mm -hmm. hear the crowd noise, the fake crowd noise, or is it just radio silent in the arena when the game's playing? They can. They can, they can okay. hear it. Okay. Um, and uh, a, guy, a guy on our game entertainment uh, team named Steven, uh, Steven sits in a suite by himself with this little digital deck in front of him and he's figured out how to I don't push the right he's literally pushing buttons and dialing things up and down based on what's happening in the arena I have to say it is just absolutely bizarre to watch a game with no fans in the building it feels like so you can weird. hear the crowd noise but yeah but it's not the same obviously right so um I, yeah it's it's bizarre I've gone to see a um I all whenever I go see games, I always go see the warm-ups. I always go early. But I've gotten to see a couple practices as well. And I when I first heard that there was gonna be no fans, I figured, is it gonna be kind of like that where you just hear the ice and then it's so awkward if there's like a fight going on. I feel like usually the fans are getting involved and the players get riled up by that, but it must be so odd for them because basically from the second you get anywhere past little league, you have, you know, parents in the stands and you always have a pretty big audience for you. So I can imagine that being different. Um do you, uh, follow-up question to that, do you think that most of the teams and the other media teams for each of the, the teams in the league, do they, are they all kind of doing the same practice, do you think, in terms of trying to come up with fan engagement? I'm not sure if you have any friends in the league and on, on, who work for other teams, but do you think they're all doing the kind of same thing and adapting in the same way? I think for the most part, I think for the most part, depends on the market a little bit. Um, some teams are doing more than others, um, but everyone has some sort of strategy to maintain uh, fan engagement. Um, the other piece, I think, from a business perspective that's important too is, you know, it's not any secret, obviously, that your sponsors are a big part of your business, right? And, and they, they, they invest a lot into uh, the team and the game, and, and as a result, should receive a lot of value in return um, to connect with the brand and that kind of thing. And without fans in the building and with all the changes, um, a really important thing, a really important strategy that we've had to be really creative on, and I can't take any credit for this, there's other people in the building working on it, but is connecting through our fan engagement opportunities, how can we take um, sponsor commitments that we may have previously had and attach them to some of the new things we're doing during the to make sure that they, the sponsor receives the same value or the same exposure that they might otherwise um, you know, expect or that they should get as part of their deal. And that's been an interesting, that'll be something that, that I think people will look back on fondly, I don't know fondly, but <laughs> it's been challenging, but I think proud, proudly pro probably because it's really forced uh, a lot of creative thinking in, in how to um, make sure that our fan engagement activities also give our partners a chance to to shine as well. Yeah, and then just following up with that, obviously um, COVID has just thrown everybody through major hoops, um, but do you think there's more work for the marketing team now before COVID or do you think that um, it's maybe just a different demand and different level that they're needing to kind of uphold? It's a little different right now. Um, our, our team is super small right now, so we really have to be deliberate and strategic on what we take on and what we we have to say no to, if that makes sense. Um, 
because we just don't have the resources to put behind different initiatives like we normally might. Um, a, a huge piece of what our marketing team does is, is support um, through campaigns and, and other initiatives, the sale tickets, right? Um, premium products, you know, group tickets, all those kinds of things. And uh, obviously there's no tickets to sell right now. And so we've had to refocus a little bit, but um, I think there will be, there will be a tremendous amount of work when next season comes and hopefully the vaccines are rolling through and, and people are safe and we can safely open the building again at some point um, to get all the things back up and running at their normal levels. Mm -hmm. I, it is like, it's even, it's just, it's, I can't even imagine what it's going to be like. I feel it'll like be exciting, but it'll be something else. <laughs> I feel like it's so scary thinking about if there is a, like a, a week or two where everything just kind of ramps back up again, or I'm really hoping that it's kind of a soft open. I'm very scared when people say, oh, do you think it's going to be like a switch where every suddenly we hit that 70% mark for the vaccines and everyone goes back to normal. I'm, I'm hoping it's not because I feel like everyone will rush to the bars. Everyone will rush to yeah. Uh, do everything that they've been missing out on and it's going to be really hard for a lot of industries to get back up and running when everything goes back to normal i will um, say too just to sort of sorry i, I will say okay. one thing that's interesting for our our industry communications is it gives you a chance to learn about different areas of businesses or different areas of government or different areas that you may not have ever had an interest in before or had exposure to before. And I think if I try and put the silver lining perspective on the past year and all that COVID has brought, um, I have learned so much about government relations and, um, and health and safety and all these things that go into protocols to, uh, like I just would never have had any idea before. And I've learned, it's been really, I've actually surprised myself at how interested I've been in learning about, you know, all the different ins and outs of infectious diseases and all these things that, that you never would have maybe thought of before. And I think that's probably one of the benefits of a communications career is you often get put in places, you know, you might not know about mining, but you know, communications and you can go and learn and apply your communication skills to a mining company or a, you know, a, a company that is really doing some amazing innovative things around, um, you know, the, you know, carbon emissions and things that are really important for the future of our planet. Like those kinds of things you can, you can get involved in almost anything if you have the right communications tools at your, uh, at your disposal. Um, I think that's really interesting. I think that's something that we've kind of covered in CIC, this event that we're doing. And I think I've, I've gone to the event. I planned one that got canceled last March and I've been to one in my three years with SFU. And it's so fascinating seeing how many different industries, I mean, with communications, basically and any industry needs communications people. There's people working for a restaurant chain, there's people working for, you know, sports, you know, the Olympics even has communications. I never even thought that, never thought occurred to me. I'm a huge I'm a huge fan of the Olympics and I just went through a binge on YouTube where I rewatch all the YouTube videos from 2018 because I need my fix because 2020 got pushed. <laughs> um, but I never thought about it. You always see the people on the front end, the people doing the interviews with the athletes and doing the nightly recaps, but you never think about how much goes in 
behind the scenes, you know, the designing of the tickets, the designing of the costumes and for the, the opening ceremonies and just designing of the torch and all that. So that's, it's kind of crazy how many industries you can be a part of with just one kind of degree or area of degree. And it's, yeah, you're absolutely right. It can give you a chance to try lots of different things, lots and lots of different things. And you can springboard into other, you know, you might start in communications and, and springboard into a marketing career as well. Um, so it's, uh, it certainly gives you the tools to, to be involved in lots of different areas. Yeah, so just a um, follow-up question in regards to that and just how um, applicable just the communications degree and the, um, the, the area is itself. So how has your experience with the Canucks changed from the first time that you were there back in the early 2000s to the second current time now, especially with social media becoming such obviously a huge factor in everybody's lives? Um, how was that kind of learning experience for you personally, just growing with the company itself and then obviously with uh, maybe some external tools like Instagram and, and Twitter and things like that. Yeah, well, I think um, you won't be surprised if I tell you that the biggest change I've seen is social media <laughs> and the, the influence that that has and the, the, the impact social media can have on just about anything. Um, I was thinking back to, you asked a question earlier about the 2010 games and I, I could be corrected on this, but like Facebook was just getting underway in the oh, years no, right. leading up to, right. right? Like what year was Facebook yeah. really kind Which of becoming? Which is so crazy a, to, to think about yeah. that it was only like, yeah, five, the, six the social years ago. Network, the Social Network is one of my all-time favorite movies. Um, and I think, I believe Zuckerberg was, it was 2006 when it was in yeah. Harvard. And about then yeah. is when stakeholders kind of started saying, oh, this is something right here. And I mean, there was MySpace, but there's nothing ever like, and even Facebook is so restrictive, if that makes sense, in compared to Instagram and Twitter. Like, Facebook, you don't really have, unless you're running a company. If you're a personal account, you don't really have millions of followers on Facebook. You just have friends. But on Instagram yeah. and Twitter, they're, they're so public and TikTok's even more public to the point where you don't even need to have followers. Anyone can see your content as long as people are kind of liking and sharing it. So yeah, to even yeah. think about that when you, by the time you came back to the Canucks in 2013, if I'm correct, it, 2013 is kind of when Instagram skyrocketed and, and, and yeah. Twitter was already pretty big by then. So I can't imagine yeah. how it was going back to a company and going, okay, this is totally different. Yeah, well, I mean, if you think back on the 2010 games, like when I was, we first put our teams together, we didn't have a social media team back in, you know, we went to Torino for the, the, the games in 2006. Mm. We didn't, we weren't tweeting or sharing stuff on social media. It was all through media. And um, like my dog might bark here. Um, <laughs> I, I can't even imagine what working on the 2010 games would have been like if Twitter and um, Facebook and all the different uh, channels were available. It would have changed everything, right? Because it's mm -hmm. such a fast moving um, uh, form of communication. And it's so, uh, it just would, it, I can imagine it would be really challenging. Let's just put it that way. And so, yes, the biggest change I noticed when I came back to it, Canucks in 2013, not surprisingly, was the social media presence and, um, and how the influence that social media had on 
fans' uh, perceptions of the team or their perceptions of players and the influence that some of the, um, the media had on social media around opinions and, and driving conversation. And I, I still don't know. I, it's still a challenge for sure. It's still a challenge for sure. You could have, you know, there's players over the years that I've seen just become sort of like the, the, the whipping boy, if you will, um, because someone started a, you know, a certain, uh, it took a certain stance about that player on social media and you can clip and you can share, you know, out of context video and you can do this and that, and it really can build, uh, reputationally some, some damaging, uh, opinions of, of, of a player, for example. And, um, that can be, that can be really hard. Um, um, because it's hard as a, as a bigger brand or as an organization to, to um, get involved in some of those conversations sometimes. Yeah, so um, again, this is kind of a fan question slash just, again, a petty question. But yeah. um, obviously, especially with the Canucks, it's such a, a huge market and the fans here are just so engaged and they love the team and they love their players and they're very passionate about it. Um, I'm curious to know, um, and especially with Twitter, there's always just that innate just demand for really quick information. And with Twitter, Instagram as well, but Twitter, um, especially a lot of things can kind of, like you mentioned, spiral out of control. Things can kind of get taken out of context. So I'm wondering how um, you and your team kind of manage the hockey Twitter aspect and, and side of things. Obviously, like I mentioned, Instagram things can again still spiral, but I'm finding just even looking through Twitter, there's just, especially after games or, or certain incidents, um, the fans are just super passionate about things. And just like I mentioned, like the quick, exactly the quick fan reaction kind of Instant echo chambers fan. kind of get created. So um, how difficult and how have you guys kind of tried to navigate those, those newer waters? Yeah, difficult is the right word. It, it can be really difficult sometimes um, because uh, let me think, I'm trying to think of an example here that would be, that would help illustrate it a little bit. You know, things can take a life of their own, uh, take on a life of their own on social media. And often they're not based in truth, <laughs> respectfully. <laughs> um, and they're based on speculation, but the more they continue to, to sort of, gain traction or, and the more sort of, if you want to quote unquote influencers talk about it, the more believable or factual people believe they are. And it can be really tough to, to fight back. So as an example, like our Twitter channel, Canucks Twitter channel has over a million followers and they primarily the Twitter channel that people follow so they can, you know, get access to the team. They can feel connected to the team and, and, um, you know, our, our unique, I guess, ability to show behind the scenes footage that other people don't have access to and things like that. It's not necessarily the channel that we look to fight rumors with or, um, you know, combat some of that stuff we just talked about. And so it's hard to know sometimes. Um, there's not always sort of an easy answer on how to um, combat some of this stuff. Sometimes it takes uh, a really important media you know outlet to to write a story to clarify um our owner has taken to twitter and has a knack for speaking out at the right time to calm things he recently posted i don't know if you remember this but 
there was a lot of rumors earlier in the year when things weren't going very well for the team and lots of rumors about people's jobs and things that were have to say like being behind the scenes there were no rumblings of any of this stuff happening but it just it grew into this sort of everyone was just counting down the days till someone was going to lose their job and and I think Francesco had had enough and he 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 (laughs) tweeted support and it just stopped it Mm -hmm. um and so I guess there's no real easy answer to that I, I have to say um it can be really difficult the social social media can be like an amazing opportunity to get a great story out there and it can be an amazingly difficult medium to to navigate as well when there's misinformation or there's a there's a real issue uh out there and it it can be really tough definitely one of the best and worst things (laughs) yeah like (laughs) it can be your best friend and oftentimes your worst enemy (laughs) especially when you're trying to run an organization and try and like you mentioned Chris combat that just um chain of misinformation and rumors and people preying on fears of like you mentioned earlier on in the year especially with COVID there was just so much on unknown so I think definitely there was a certain group of people that definitely did to kind of prey on that and try and perpetuate something out of that so no I can definitely understand that yeah and there there are good people there are people who are very good at it right and um, there are examples out there of politicians and others well there's one really big example of a politician who used Twitter Let's not go there, but um, <laughs> there are other leaders out there that use Twitter in a, as an example, in a, in a very effective way. And I think if you do it intentionally and you're careful with it, it can be a really good tool. But, but man, once you open that door, you gotta, mm-hmm. you gotta maintain it, right? You can't just, mm-hmm. you really have Android to be active box. and, and ready for it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do you ever, when it comes to, you brought the example of the controversy on Twitter in the first couple of weeks of the season. Um, that was a decision. Who, who made the decision or was it just on something on his own to take to Twitter and say, to put the rumors out? Do you ever consider there's always so many rumors floating, obviously, and some of them are so small that by the time the next day starts, they've forgotten. Um, obviously that one was kind of something that was spiraling over a couple of days and weeks. Um, at what point, was there a decision saying, okay, we got to address this or were you just kind of going to let it run its course? Because obviously if no one did get fired, then they're going to shut up eventually. Um, Or was there kind of a discussion behind the scenes going, we got to address this because it's just getting out of hand and no one's focusing on the team. They're focusing on, you know, behind the scenes rumors. Yeah. I think, I think it was such a loud conversation online that, that uh, Francesco felt it was important to clarify at that moment and uh, and I, I you know I support that decision. It, it really, it really um, made a difference. It's not going to stop it forever, if that makes sense. But it uh, it's an important important one. Um, the other part that is is interesting for anyone who's listening and follows hockey is, and I'm sure it's like this with lots of industries. But there there are a lot of media out there who are influenced. I guess you could categorize them as influencers who, who, who get, uh, scoops and, you know, put them out there on Twitter and it, they can, that can be really challenging as well. They always seem to get the news just before we're ready to announce it, for example. Mm -hmm. So, um, I have my suspicions on how this all happens. Um, (laughs) but, uh, um, you know, if, 
is there's endless endless list of examples of where we're about to sign a new player and you've done all the work and five minutes before you're ready to announce you know one of the guys from from you know hockey night in canada or tsn <laughs> or sportsnet comes out with it and you're like oh, man like <laughs> seriously yeah so just ruins the whole thing <laughs> yeah so it's uh it it's part of it's part of life i guess in this business it's fine it's not that big a deal but uh it, it sort of forces us to be really on top of things and it also reinforces i guess the 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 importance of us using our where we have an edge over others which is on social media being able to show behind the scenes footage that other people don't have access to and that's kind of our niche we're not as one person in our office put it we're not going to out sportsnet sportsnet They've got all the resources for highlights and uh, in-game out analysis and all those things where we've got our, our edge is, is sort of that behind the scenes personality um, access that others just don't have. So that's kind of where we lean into. For sure. Finding kind of the niche audience. Cause there's people who want to see, if they want to see the analysis, they're not going to go to the Canucks Twitter to look for you guys talking about the coach and his decisions. You're, you you want to look for outside outlets, of course. Um, yeah, on your yeah. kind of resume as to what your job is currently, um, you mentioned strategic communication support for the executive team and people like the GM and the head coach and the players and even the ownership. Um, what does that exactly mean and how, how hands-on are you in those positions or is it more of an overseeing role? Uh, it's a little bit of both. Sometimes it's really hands-on. Sometimes it's, um, you know, supportive or overseeing. Let me think of an example. You know, if we were announcing, let me think here. Like if we were, if we were announcing, let's use Trevor Linden as an example. Back when Trevor was, we came back as a president of the team. Uh, I was hands-on and my team would have been hands-on in helping to frame up that announcement properly, the timing of it, what the right messages would be uh, and the overall objective and then once you establish that, then there's, there's layers of different tactics that you, that you, you know, attach to it to make sure that the announcement goes off really well. And so we were, we were part of the message development and the, the overall strategy to how to introduce them back to the team. And then from there, a lot of the other sort of aspects of the business can, can be connected to it. So as an example, you know, the content team, you know, went to Trevor's house and got in the car with him on his first day coming to work, that kind of thing. And we were able to tell that story on our corporate partnerships level, which is a totally different area. We wanted to make sure all our sponsors knew what was happening. There was a really well-written letter uh, explaining that Trevor's coming back. And this is his role, like framed up with the same kind of messaging we're using, same tone and manner. And so it's sort of across the board you're involved in sort of all aspects of that communication when something major like that happens. And then sort of the most, I guess, front facing things that people would see would be like that press conference where Trevor was introduced. I think Francesco probably was there as well and working with, with all the people who are sitting at the mic to make sure they're all you know ready for what they wanna communicate and ready for the types of questions they're going to get so that they're not sort of sitting there and caught off guard maybe by what you know, potential question might be and they're just ready to answer in the in the right way. I rambled there for a second. I wasn't on message, but hopefully that makes sense. 
No, that was that was perfect. And I guess this is a little bit off topic, but also somewhat connected with just your level of involvement. But it'd be stupid of me to not ask this question. But obviously, the Canucks had their internship program before, obviously, COVID and everything like that. But um, like you mentioned, with the team getting smaller and COVID, obviously, um, that had to get um, closed for for the time being. Um, Are there plans on bringing that program back? Is it something that is maybe going to get addressed in the future or I know that a lot of my friends were kind of curious and like oh what's what's going to happen with it it was such a great program but now it's kind of just at a standstill obviously with COVID but um, yeah we're just kind of interested to know if there's if it's going to be coming back soon if there are plans for a relaunch of it or well it's a good question timely because we actually just talked about it yesterday Um, and I think the intention would be to bring it back Um, and it would probably be in line with next season and some of the sort of staffing strategies that we have for the company based on how next season might go. And so we're still in the early stages of looking at that, but I think it, it's going to be probably a big part of what we're doing for next year and years going forward. It was, it's been really successful and um, the students that have come in and, and helped the organization have really made a difference uh and uh that's the goal we're going to get it going again awesome. top that's prospects to hear yes top prospects. That's, the, that's what yeah. it's called <laughs> i was yeah. it was on the tip of my tongue as well i was like what is it called i just was looking at it the other day <laughs> but yes no that's great to hear and um yeah i totally agree obviously um we can't see what's kind of going on the back end here but i think jen and i both kind of briefly talked about it and um obviously with the previous success of the program i we both kind of agreed that like you mentioned before, Chris, with not the relaunch because the the season is still going, but uh, especially next year with hopefully um, all the rules and regulations lessening, um, that it's going to be a really kind of pivotal area of, of the foundation and of the organization. Yeah, I think the idea behind the program for anyone who hasn't been part of it before and might be interested, um, there is and will be more information on Canucks.com. And the idea being that we bring in some really great students with lots of potential who are, are, are sharp and eager to learn and they get a wide variety of different experiences within the sports industry under you know, Canucks sports and entertainment. So there's, there's a desire, I think, to give meaningful work to, to students and assign projects work that often is, are those kinds of things that we talk about internally, like, we, we need to put this strategy together for X, Y, and Z, but man, we just don't have the people power to do it right now. And it would be great to have a fresh perspective. Let's, why don't we give it to, you know, um, Sydney and Jen and they can go off and build a strategy and come back to us and we can work on it and, and establish something. So um, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's been two years, I think we've done internships for a long time, but this particular program has been in place for two years and, uh, as of our conversations very recently. Uh, I think the intent is to bring it back for sure. Yeah, I was just going to ask, I'm not sure if you would know this or Sydney, and I think you kind of touched on it, is it's different from the co-op program because there, there was co-op positions offered through schools, but this is another thing. I Back in May, I was supposed to, actually, no, it got pushed. I think it was supposed to be in March, but then it got pushed to April and then it just didn't happen. Um, it was a networking event with the with um, the Canucks and it was a, we were going to network and then go see 
one of the games. I think the game was against the Sabres or somebody. And I had tickets with a friend. Uh, she's a Leafs fan, but I had to, I said, come on, you're in Vancouver now. You gotta, <laughs> you gotta go to this Canucks event with me. I feel like there's always so many different events that are happening with community engagement and getting involved with kind of the youth and up and coming people and university and media relations and, and other faculties as well is so important. And I think it's such a good aspect of what the Canucks do, what the Canucks do with their, with their platform and, and kind of, that's just a whole other side of community engagement where you're, you're offering people positions and you're offering them experience, which I think is really amazing. Yeah. And I think it's, it's so valuable for the students, but it's also valuable for us because, you know, I've been lucky enough to be there two different tours, but I think it's all told something approaching 16 years or something like that, mm-hmm. but I don't know everything. And I don't know, like, I, I really value different perspectives and, you know, different perspectives, especially that a younger generation might bring to how to approach something because we all think a bit differently. And, and uh, I can, you know, I, it's really, really valuable. And it's, it would be uh, pretty naive to think that, you know, you know, back in the old days, we just used to send a press release and call the news stations and make sure they got it on their fax machines. How old am I? I'm not that old actually. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but it's so different now and it's going to be in five years from now, it's going to be dramatically different than it is today. And That's so we got to stay sure. on top of those things. And so programs like this can, can be doubly beneficial, right? It's, it's very helpful for a student in their career, super helpful for the organization too, to, to learn from what the students have to, to have to offer. I mean, just looking at TikTok alone, like that was created in 20s. I don't want to make a mistake on this. I believe it was created in 2018. Um, but just in the pandemic alone, it went from basically, you know, a platform where a lot of high school students are using it to something where people like of all ages are using, there's people, there's every generation that's alive right now is on TikTok and it's become one of the the biggest social media platform in the world of the surpassing ones that have been around for 10, 15 years. So it's crazy how fast it can evolve online and who knows, like TikTok could be the second, if it was banned in the States, I'm sure something else would replace it and it would be a whole different TikTok or similar platform that takes off. So yeah, it's kind of crazy how fast things can change and how important it is to kind of look to people who might understand and have an inside look on that new avenue. Yeah, yeah. There's lots of conversations right now about um, the viability of the 2030 Olympic Games here Mm -hmm. in Vancouver and in BC. And if I think about 2030, which is nine years away, yeah. Like the difference in the, in, in what we're doing today mm-hmm. versus what we'll be doing then in ter- when, when it comes to social media and communications will be mm-hmm. uh, dramatically different. What's funny is I have a feeling if they do come here, they're probably going to look to people who worked on the Vancouver Olympics and you guys are going to go, it's so different. Like it's so, it's so different. And I, like, I just, even going from 2010 to 2014, the Sochi Olympics or even 2012, the London Olympics, I have a feeling everybody who did those, they couldn't, they couldn't even look back to any of the previous Olympics. And like you said, you went to the 2006 ones. And did you have communication with people who ran the Olympics before you and you kind of talked to them about it? Yeah, but it's, uh, it's hard when they're in it, like when they're, they're executing the games, it's um, like, you're just, I remember just wanting to crawl across the finish line at the end. You're just so done. (laughs) <laughs> even though it's so amazing yeah, yeah. the tunnel um, vision <laughs> yeah 
So you get kind of like the next games, people coming into town all fresh faced. Okay, can I can I tell me a little bit of this and that? And you're just like, I'm just trying to survive, man. Um, so yeah, but I, I think um, for the 2030 games, I think we'll start hearing a little bit more about that here pretty soon. And um, I think I don't know. I think there might be a chance. I think I think okay. there might be a chance with which would be so amazing for the younger cool. generation that you know, may not have had the same opportunities to experience 2010, right? Um, well, the idea, the idea, I'll leave you with this, and we can talk as long as you want, but I'll, when it comes to the 2030 Olympics, um, I think there's a, a thought that it could really be a catalyst to help British Columbia rebound after this pandemic mm-hmm. when it comes to tourism and the, the, the jobs and things of that nature. There could be really, this could be really a, a beacon of hope for people um, there's obviously a lot of things that have to happen earlier in people's lives than 2030 to get back on track. But as mm-hmm. a sort of a, a bigger focus for the province, I think it could be something pretty special. And we have everything we need. We have the venues. They're built. For the most part, they're all built. Um, and if they aren't built, there's other places in the province that could probably host some of the events as well, which is different than what happened in 2010. And so I think the from a you know, people are rightly always concerned about uh, public dollars going into big events like this. And should they go into other areas instead? And, you know, this, I think this one could be almost entirely privately funded through sponsorships and ticket sales and broadcast and things like that. Like, I think, think there's a chance actually that um, it could become a real possibility for us here. That's fantastic news for me. <laughs> I've been longing for you it. You just made Jen's day. <laughs> I just, you just made my year, honestly. I can just spend the next nine years looking at it. Um, All right, Sydney, any of the last comments, questions? Um, I don't think so. I think if anything, before we wrap up, Chris, I'll take something out of your books. But um, when the Canucks are looking to revamp next year jen and i are more than more than happy to step in at any moment if you need any help we will we can be assistants you can be whatever um but yeah thank you again so much for for um taking the time again out of your day chris any any final any final comments or points you want to make before we we stop recording um i guess though i would say a couple things the questions that i sometimes get from people getting into the communications business are like, well, what are tips you can provide to get in? And I, I, I've never found a job through just job postings. I've always found my next opportunity through relationships and networking. So I, mm-hmm. I, um, you know, occasionally, you know, if I, if I hear from a student or something and they want to talk and they say, well, what do you, what do you recommend? I'm saying, well, you're doing exactly what you should do right now. Um, having these kind of conversations. So I would encourage students out there if they're trying to figure out their path to don't be afraid to, to reach out to people in brands and businesses that you aspire to be part of and ask if they have uh, you know, time for a quick chat. You may, not, you may not get any bites, but you might get a bite and that might lead to something. And I think that's a, that's a good way to go. And, and like I said earlier, you know, if you, if you like communications, it's a, it's a a fun way to make a living um, because you can get involved in so many different things out in the, in the world and, and you can choose your passion and, and really go for it. So 
it's a challenging, challenging place to, to spend your career, but it's also re really rewarding as well. Well, on that note, that was a fantastic closing comment. Um, it was absolutely amazing talking to you. I wish you the best with the season and, you know, the future. Um, and I guess we can, we can end the recording. This was episode number four of Careers in Communication with CMNSU and Friends. If you enjoyed it, give us a follow on Instagram at CMNSU and check out our website at CMNSU.com to stay updated on the latest news about events and other fun things we're doing. Later this week, we will be joined by Danielle Davey from Google. See you then.